This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This edition of Oh God, What Now? was recorded before the events at the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday evening, just in case you're wondering why we're not talking about it. Brian Klass joined us for an emergency bunker discussing the events in Washington, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the first Oh God, What Now? of 2021. Happy, in scare quotes, New Year. Not a classic start, I'm going to say. I'm Dorian Linsky. I have three regulars here to get me through lockdown the third. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hi. <laughs> um, in 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 old, far distant December news, the trade deal was finally signed over Christmas. So Brexit is legally done. How did you feel when it was finally over on New Year's Eve? Um, well, it was such mixed emotions. You know, on the one hand, there was this huge sense of relief, um, not least because we'd had a trial run of Dover disruptions due to the new variant outbreaks and, and countries closing their borders to us. And at Best Written and on the show and all the rest of it, we'd always said that, of course, a thin deal is still better than no deal at all because of providing the foundations on which you can build a better relationship with Europe over time. Um, Because goodness knows, without closer alignment, there's certainly no hope of us ever rejoining, which I know many of our listeners hope will happen within their lifetimes so that we can get our freedom of movement and citizenship back but on the other hand of course I had a huge huge sense of frustration and loss because the deal isn't only completely inferior of course to you know the membership that we did enjoy but it's a pale reflection of what Johnson himself had promised at the last election Um, and it was accompanied by statements that just weren't true I mean listeners will remember that during that Christmas Eve statement Johnson said there would be no non-tariff barriers and of course there are many there's the declarations there's checks there's permits there's all sorts of barriers and he previously said we wouldn't pull out of Erasmus but of course we have in, in what can only be described as a spite full treatment of the younger generation and he you know he said that there wouldn't be checks on goods entering Northern Ireland and of course there is so I was I was angry I was frustrated I was incredibly sad but it was all tempered by some sense of relief that at least we know what we're dealing with now and we can move forward and and build back towards a better relationship with Europe hopefully that was our lowest point. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. So uh, we're going to go for a bit of positivity at the beginning. The New Economics Foundation think tank has called for serious consideration of a four-day week, uh, which several companies have unilaterally tried uh, with promising results, um, rather than sort of uh, lay off as many people as they might have to. They've tried to sort of, you know, sort of spread the load by having people work less. And some of them, sometimes uh, productivity has improved. I think in all in all the cases, in the stories I've read, productivity improved. This idea was, of course, in the last Labour manifesto. Do you think COVID could actually make it happen faster than it, than it otherwise would? 
The thing COVID has shown us is that work is a lot more flexible for some people than we thought it was. You don't necessarily have to do it in the office and you don't necessarily have to do it in set office hours. However, the people who this applies to are chiefly the middle classes. And we have to remember the four-day week that it is the people who are in a full-time job with a a fairly steady contract situation who are likely to benefit from this. If you're working in the gig economy, if you have multiple jobs, this simply doesn't apply. And while we continue in Britain to have a lot of people, they encourage a lot of people for the sake of flexibility and the sake of labour market flexibility to work in that way, it's going to be very difficult to really bring in and enforce a four-day week. And that's the problem I see, that fundamentally it's a lovely policy. If you're middle class and if you're not worried about how much money you've got coming in, if you can manage, if you can almost do that kind of, well, I'm prepared to give up this amount of money to have a bit more leisure. But a lot of people aren't in that situation. So if you're a delivery driver for Amazon, you know, four-day week is, is, is not ever going to happen. So we have to think about those people as well and not just people in steady contracts. Well, when Labour had this idea then, were, were they not thinking of those other uh, people in, in more precarious employment? Was 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 theirs purely about sort of uh, middle-class employment? Well, I'm sure it wasn't intended to be, but the fact is that um, Labour is often thinking about people who are in unionised jobs and those are often have, those, those often have better working conditions anyway. Many of the new jobs that we've seen spring up over the past decade aren't unionised, aren't likely to be affected by legislation along these lines. You you really have to think again about whether you're going to persist in the direction the UK has taken in recent years, whether you're going to encourage proper contracts. And if you're not, then a four-day week is only really going to benefit people who are already in a fairly good position. So unionise Amazon, <laughs> basically. Um, and we have writer, commentator and cook, Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. So we actually have good news for the US, the lucky bastards, where Democrats John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock appear to have won their Senate runoffs, taking control of the Senate from Turtleface supervillain Mitch McConnell. Um, <laughs> do you think that two months of the Republicans trashing the integrity of Georgia's elections may have affected this very close result? Of course it did, without a doubt. You can't keep going around telling people their vote doesn't count and express and expect this will motivate them to vote vigorously. Um, it's quite clear in the final tallies, actually, compared to November, that Democrats got the vote out better than Republicans, which is unheard of for a runoff in Georgia. Yeah, and, and of course, Democratic control of the White House and now both houses of Congress uh, has huge implications, I mean, for all kinds of policies um, mm. going forward. What do you think it's going to mean in the in the short term? What's the first thing that a Democratic-controlled Senate will do that a McConnell-controlled Senate would not have done? Well, I, I think it will mean that Biden can get on with addressing the immediate issue of a rampant epidemic. I mean, there were almost 4,000 COVID-19 deaths in the US yesterday and its economic implications without having to negotiate every little thing. Because remember, there was agreement between the houses, even as the Senate was uh, Republican controlled, for instance, to to send out the stimulus checks, and it was Trump that stopped it. Um, so, so it really is huge. It, it really is a big thing in the in the short term. 
On this week's edition, Lockdown 3, the worst sequel ever. How did we get here? How's the government handling vaccinations? And how emotionally equipped is Britain for at least seven more weeks of homeschooling and home everything? And you can't even get a takeaway pint. And European trade expert David Hennig joins us in the second segment to explain what Britain will need to do in the years to come if it wants a real trading relationship with Europe. Plus, we'll have one of your questions in but your emails and in the extended extra bit at the end of the show exclusive to patreon people we'll be looking at coping strategies for lockdown 2021 is this really the year to try dry january <laughs> you could get the extended version of oh god what now without adverts and a whole day early too plus our brand new merchandise when you sign up to support us on patreon it starts at a piffling two pounds a month so it's patreon oh god what now to find out more First up, on Sunday, Boris Johnson insisted that it was safe to send children back to school. Then on Monday, as if he were playing the game my daughter calls opposite day, he closed every single school in England by announcing a tough new seven-week lockdown that sends us back to last March. A D-minus for leadership, Johnson. See me later. Um, Roz, we are the two parents on the podcast thrown back into the exciting challenge of working while homeschooling. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, what now? Uh, there are obviously many warnings against reopening schools and universities last month, focusing on the particular threat of the, the kind of more uh, infectious new strains. Why on earth did this U-turn come so late, even by the standards of tardy government U-turns? We're literally talking sort of the difference between Sunday and Monday. Well, Johnson and Williamson closed down almost everything else to keep schools open. This is a big change since last summer when you will recall that pubs and all kinds of other venues were open months before schools were. So there was a big change there. And this was in defiance of, you know, many angry Tory backbenchers to close down all these things in order to prioritise schools. When it became clear that the virus was spreading through schools in December quickly, they were reluctant to let go of that strategy because it was the one thing that appeared to have been going well for them in the autumn. It was, you know, it was like clinging to the last, the last bit of the wreckage when you've just been swept off the boat. It, it, it was the only thing that, you know, that, that, that they had to hold on to. And if they could make that work, they could, I think, feel that they had achieved something. And I think that was why they were so reluctant to let go of it. Um, because from, from the outside, it appears that Johnson learns nothing. And one explanation uh, is these stories about a sort of fairly persistent cabinet split with Hancock and Gove always on the sort of side of caution and Williamson, like Sunak, in the sort of denying the inevitable, um, you know, keep things open until the last possible minute. And that Johnson just sort of bridges the gap with fudge. Do you think that that is a kind of, uh, do you find that a sort of persuasive explanation for why we keep seeing the same kind of action play out? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's fairly well reported now that Johnson tends to agree with the last person he spoke to. And that is a big weakness. It's also become apparent, which I don't think people were expecting, that Dominic Cummings' influence was not perhaps so wholly malevolent as we may have assumed when he was in number 10, that he did exert some influence over Johnson. And we might have had lockdown 3.0 a little bit earlier if Cummings had been Bring involved. back Dom! So, yeah, that is Dom, not Dom, 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 Dom. <laughs> 
I, I, I'm really saying that if there was one person who was perhaps scary enough to force Johnson into some kind of decision, then perhaps it was Dominic. Or make Cummings. it for him. Do you yeah. remember that far show sketch where Paul Whitehouse played a guy in a pub who always agreed with whoever he just last spoke to? <laughs> so it was basically like someone going, no, but the thing is, Dave, uh, we need to keep the schools open because of the, uh, the, the inequalities and, and, and the mental health. And he's like, yeah, yeah, schools open. And then someone else goes, yeah, but Dave, what about the virulent new strain? Surely we have to shut schools. And he goes, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, shut the schools. Yeah, well, that's Johnson. I mean, we, we know that's how it is. He writes, you know, it's it's going back to the old, old story that we've all heard before of him writing a, uh, an article in favour of leave and an article in favour of remain before the vote uh, in 2016 and deciding which one to go with. He can argue it either way. Uh, he is infinitely malleable. Uh, and we can tell this from the whole history of his political career. Um, now, Starmer did demand a lockdown on Sunday. Do you agree with the criticisms of, of him and Labour for not immediately backing the National Education Union's call for school, for school closures? Should Labour always sort of stand firmly with unions during the crisis? How do you think that he, he kind of played that? He was obviously wary of doing so because Johnson in the past has accused <coughs> him at PMQs of being in hock to the unions and undermining children's education in in uh, agreeing to whatever the unions recommended. So he was clearly cautious and didn't want to do that. I mean, Labour's relationship with the unions is a long, very, you know, extremely long and very interesting one. It reminds me of, it reminds me of um, the um, Guardian's relationship with the Labour Party when I was working when I was working for the Guardian, writing leaders, and it was uh, it was it was never quite clear whether the Guardian and the uh, was a critical friend of Labour or a friendly critic of Labour. But <laughs> I think for, it depended who you were in the paper. But I think uh, in uh, when it comes to Labour and the unions, I mean, undoubtedly, they want to be a critical friend, but they should be a critical friend. It, it, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be synonymous because while the unions are extremely important, and not just in terms of funding, but in terms of their the the reach and the influence and that they provide and the variety of experiences that they bring to the party, that does not mean that every union at every time is is necessarily saying the right things. In this case, uh, I, it was, but you know, in general, you should not one hundred percent. I think assume that. So, Alex, we're, we're back to March in the sense there's a lockdown. Joe Wicks is back. <laughs> Clap for the NHS is back. It's all, it's, it's, it's just... Uh, Alex is in Greece. Alex is in the UK this time. I know. Oh, so, but, but, yeah. I mean, I'm having sort of obviously overwhelming nostalgia. <laughs> um, are the, as you understand, are the new measures basically exactly the same as last March? Or is there anything that's sort of allowed now, open now, that, that wasn't? No, there? there's a, there are a few differences. Um, I mean, from small ones to, for instance, exercise is not time limited now. It was time limited during the first lockdown. So you can have one spell of outside exercise, but it can be as long as you like. So you can cycle as far as you can go and cycle back. Um, playground Cycle to Barnard Castle. Yes. <laughs> Playgrounds and nurseries uh, are open. They weren't in March. Um, but the biggest difference is probably the, the household bubbles that are allowed. So back in March, if you were basically... Uh, 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 one person living in a household, tough. You were locked in on your own. 
But now if you are a single person in a household or if you are the only sort of responsible adult in a household, then you can bubble up with another household so that basically you don't go mad from loneliness. Um, now, the public mood seems darker this time, perhaps because obviously it feels like we're going backwards. There's less of that kind of, uh, you know, the sort of the novelty factor and this sort of all in this together yeah. emergency quality to it. But do you think the unprecedented number of cases and hospitalizations, I think we've just seen the first day with over 1,000 deaths reported. And, and, and I think anecdotally, we all seem to know people who have it, yeah. more people have it this time. Do you think that will scare people into compliance, even though we've all had quite enough of this bullshit? Gee, I hope it does. I mean, it would be nothing short of tragic if people ended up dying unnecessarily, even as they stand in the sort of virtual big queue for the vaccine. Um, in, in Greece, we say you've eaten a whole donkey, don't fail to eat the tail. And that's a little bit how it, it feels now. You know, we, we've made such sacrifices over the last sort of nine months. Now with a vaccine around the corner, just, you know, steal yourself and make one final push. Don't, don't fall at the last hurdle. Thank you for the Greek food metaphor, which is why you get the big bucks. It's, it's really why we have you on. Um, there's growing rage against, uh, particularly in my head, against <laughs> lockdown skeptics, <laughs> you know, like Alison Pearson, Margie Nawaz, and contrarian scientists like Carol, it'll be all right on the night, Sakura. And our only and Dunt was arguing with Toby Young on Newsnight about this. Do you think there is a case for deplatforming or cancelling, if you will, people who sort of spread disinformation in, in a pandemic? I think that is a backward way of looking at it, actually. I don't think there's a case for deplatforming or cancelling anyone. I think there's a very strong case for not fucking booking them in the first place. Um, you know, the, the right to free speech does not include a right to write newspaper columns or appear on the BBC. I don't, I don't know how we've ended up with people feeling somehow entitled, if they hold a niche view, to express it on the national broadcaster. There is no such right. And so, you know, no, I... I think there's a case for not having these people on, but I don't think it's a matter of deplatforming. I think it's a matter of booking the right guests. I think it's a matter of booking people who know what they're talking about. I think I would actually, I would actually go further on that because I think you're talking about booking, for example, you know, who the BBC chooses to book. Uh, the Today programme booking Sinatra Gupta, for example. But, you know, I actually think, you know, the Telegraph should be not, letting Alison Pearson uh, do what she does. I don't know why LBC yeah, well, uh, is, is sort of allowing Majid Nawaz to, to – I think I think when we're talking about disinformation and people – Britain, we, they, people love their wartime metaphors. And obviously in, war to, in wartime, free speech did not include just sort of, you know, Lord Haw-Haw. No, I, look, I agree entirely. I just think it's the wrong way of looking at it because Alison Pearson – does not have some sort of God-given right to write columns for the Telegraph. If they're shit and they're dangerous, don't carry them. And the same should go for the tech platforms as well. 
I, I agree. You know, like YouTube, it's a private entity. It, it's precisely the same people who are on their case for uh, not acting as editors, not filtering content when it comes to, you know, things that have to do with safety of children and stuff like that, are precisely the same people who are condemning them now for acting as editors and saying, do you know what? We're not going to have this on our platform. So, you know, pick... Which is it? Do you want them to be responsible for the content or not responsible for the content? Well, the idea that it's just opinions, that everything's just opinions, was, of course, there are, you know, if you're talking about kind of, uh, you know, faulty information uh, that can actually uh, kill people, that's it's not just an opinion. Yes, but, and I think- but even when it comes to opinions, there is such a thing as an informed scientific opinion and one that I thought of while sitting on the on the shitter on a Sunday afternoon and then churned out for, for, a, for a column in the Telegraph. Do, do you know what I mean? Uh. So there may be things in the science of COVID that aren't settled, but the opinion of an epidemiologist is not equilibral to the opinion of Alison Pearson. And we must never get into the, the position where we're discussing her deplatforming as if her opinion was valid in the first place. She should be writing, you know, reviews of her favourite TV shows. She should be writing her opinion on the politics of the day. She shouldn't be writing things about whether, you know, this new variant of COVID is more transmissible or not, because she doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. Well, regarding the scientists, I also saw, saw someone making a very good point that, yes, of course, science, you know, scientists, you know, science moves forward through error. But the whole point is it moves forward through people, through scientists going, yes, that was wrong. Yeah. Now we have better information, whereas the scientists, beloved of the uh, Toby and Allison crowd, uh, seem extremely reluctant to ever admit that they've got anything wrong. Yes. <laughs> and, and continue to continue to push the same line. And this is, of course, encouraged because they're not put in an environment where they are challenged by other scientists. You see, I think, for instance, Professor Sikora is in a different category to Alison Pearson because he's a, he's a medical doctor. But I think he should be put on a program with an epidemiologist who knows the ins and outs of what they're talking about so that they can challenge him on the detail of the science of his opinion rather than be put on a pa panel as a talking head who makes everyone feel good because he tells them this is over every five minutes for the last nine months. Naomi, <laughs> um, going back to the, to the, uh, the school closures, there are... So pupils without laptops or broadband access who, who find it very difficult to learn at home. What has the government failed to do since the last extended lockdown ended at the start of July? Um, you know, the, the sort of measures that you they should have put in place in the event of another long lockdown. I mean, everything, Dorian. Like, they, they have almost failed to do everything. And, and these are like the English nationalists, right, who are wrong about absolutely everything almost all of the time but the one time the one time that their their anti-open borders policy might have been useful low they totally failed to close the borders do any testing at airports temperature checks etc you know and that's because this government's aim has been to live with the virus 
rather than to go for making the UK COVID secure, as as we've talked about on our sister podcast, The Bunker. So they have simply never done enough to get us close to wiping it out. Um, and, And they're active when they have to be rather than when they should be. And when you consider the billions and billions the government has squandered, let alone the billions and billions and billions that it has spent legitimately, it just beggars belief that they couldn't have done something as simple as bulk buying laptops for disadvantaged children over the summer when everyone was predicting a second wave. And um, I noticed that I wrote a question uh, this morning asking, will we be seeing the return of emergency measures like getting the homeless into sheltered accommodation? Uh, And the the news apparently is, no, we will not. Um, I mean, how can that possibly be justified if we are effectively going back to March, uh, accepting those those differences that, that Alex mentioned? How on earth can you, can letting the homeless freeze? be just sort of morally tolerable well it isn't it, it isn't um it's it's disgraceful and i you know i my heart breaks because it's presumably only a matter of days before we find somebody uh you know dead um uh in the streets and frozen when they don't need to be you know the fact the fact of the matter is this government was able to prove that homelessness doesn't need to be a thing it fixed it and it has now unfixed it uh, and, and, and that's totally unforgivable. So there are the people that had last time and now don't have this time. And then there are the people who didn't have last time and still don't have any more. And Sunak's big uh, spending package that uh, he hasn't come to Parliament to uh, to discuss, but he has announced, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's incredible that he has not included the three million plus people we know that have so far been totally excluded from furlough or from any other kind of government bailout you know that these additional grants that he's uh talking about i think they total something like 4.6 billion will just not find their way into the pockets of the self-employed and those wrongfully denied furlough payments in the past because they are part of one of these excluded groups you know maybe they were a new joiner so therefore weren't eligible or uh you know that they are sort of freelancers on a paye contract and it's it's an injustice that these people haven't been given a penny of government support during the crisis and once again you know they're being asked to follow new restrictions without any help you know they're they're locked up and locked out um and i just think you know for the chancellor to sit on his hands until the spring budget at least is unacceptable and we've got to protect the vulnerable from the homeless through to these people who have you know uh, gone the best part of a year without any financial support whatsoever or ability to earn finally uh, ross let's talk about a labor leader of yesteryear uh, Tony Blair popped up uh, a while back to recommend that the vaccine program focus on getting the first dose to as many people as possible and uh, postpone the second. After the usual chorus of shut up, Tomty, the government did exactly that. And now we have even Nigel Farage uh, saying something nice about Blair when he's not writing into the BBC to complain about Graham Norton. Do we know enough about the vaccine now uh, to say whether or not it's a good idea? Because it, it, people were generally thrown when Blair intervened and it basically came down to whether you do, do like Tony Blair or not, whether you thought it was a good idea. Now it's actually happening. Um, it seems like a better idea, but there's still sort of concerns about well, what if the kind of efficacy is diminished? What if the kind of, you know, the vaccine sort of expires before you get the second dose? Well, the efficacy may well be diminished. It's hard to say how much at this stage. We don't know. And I should caveat everything I say by pointing out, as you all know, that I am not an expert in vaccination. And the medical community and experts in vaccination are somewhat divided on this question. Um, In the US in particular, 
they're taking a different route from we are uh, from, from from ours and so we're not sure what we can say is that obviously the the existing vir- uh, the existing vaccines we've got do seem to have a very high level of protection with two doses 90 95% that's a lot more than you get from for example the flu vaccine usually the um, effectiveness of the flu vaccine in most years is way way beyond that often around sort of 50% so even a uh, a less efficacious vaccine is probably going to be better than that and there's another factor which is not just how many people catch it but how severe the disease is when you do catch it and it does seem with the results of these vaccines as well that when you do catch covid you don't get it so badly and that of course is hugely important that keeps people out of hospital it stops people dying so it's a really tough one i don't pretend to have any individual insight all i can do is trust like most of us to the expertise of the people in making these decisions in the nhs which makes me think you obviously sort of published the experts but like i said initially people's reactions seem to be based on whether they trusted blair or not and then when the government uh, adopted this policy and uh, new york times ran a piece with uh, a lot of american scientists being very critical you saw a huge kind of um pickup of that piece on kind of lefty and remainer sort of twitter basically anyone on twitter doesn't like the government which is a, it's a lot of people uh, but it seemed to be based on just the assumption that just like well the government's gonna fuck it up um, and well, then you actually had pushback from scientists going. It's not this a New bad York Times piece at this stage, though. Is no, it? well, no, let's, but, let's but it's but it's also problematic because then you had scientists pushing back and going, actually, this New York Times story is really misleading. And perhaps one of the difficulties that we all have in trying to process information at this time is that we we sort of when we when we when we're not up on the science, we process it through our sort of political lens, and we go, well, if Boris Johnson's saying this then it's probably wrong. And if the New York Times is being yeah. very critical, then they're probably right. And then, you know, and that th- actually, we, it's, we do end up, I suppose, perhaps misinforming ourselves through political bias. Well, yes. And that, of course, speaks to what we were just talking about in regard to lockdown as well. What you tend to think, you know, about lockdown is often often linked to who you, not just what what you would like to believe, but who you find who is persuasive, who shares your opinion. And in these instances where we cannot, you know, I cannot, you cannot, none of us can know the full details of the vaccine success rates. All we can do is place our trust in individuals. And this is why it's so corrosive when you have a government like ours, which continually demands our trust and then pulls it away and totally undermines it. And in these U-turns, this is why it's so difficult to, to, create that. But, you know, of course, we put our trust in individuals. And that's why the vaccination campaigns, that's why each time you see uh, an, a famous person on Twitter or whatever, getting a vaccine, uh, Mary Berry or Ian McKellen or whoever, that's no accident. That's a deliberate government campaign. One of the main prongs of the uh, vaccination campaign is for people to see people whom they trust, ideally as apolitical as possible, getting the vaccine. I'm not going to take it until I see Lawrence Fox injecting it into his eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, Lawrence, isn't Lawrence Fox now boycotting the BBC because the BBC is yeah. um, has, is doing um, programming for uh, educational yeah, programs? He was inundated with requests to appear before. Oh, yeah, yeah. sadly, the, yeah, the BBC the BBC has been boycotting Lawrence Fox <laughs> without telling him for some time now. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Now, you may have noticed that there was a trade deal with the EU after all. The government bundled it through Parliament over Christmas with Labour support, and now we get to discover at our leisure what it actually means. NAMI's organisation, Best for Britain, commissioned an extensive report on the next 10 years from David Hennig, Director of the UK Trade Policy Project. He's here to explain what Britain needs to do to cope in the new era. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Hello there. Yes, I'm afraid I lost my Christmas to uh, reading this trade deal. (laughs) Very sorry, David. Well, spoiler warning for people who haven't read your report yet. It says the UK-EU trade deal is not fit for a modern trade environment, which I'm sure will surprise many. What should, I mean, sort of brief, obviously it is is worth people reading the report, which is on the Best of Britain website. Briefly, what should a modern trade relationship look like and how does Johnson's deal fall short? What are the main areas? A modern trade relationship is phenomenally complex. So the UK and the EU, the trading relationship is worth £670 billion a year. So that's nearly £2 billion of trade a year. Now, that's not made up of just the UK making some trinkets and selling them abroad, whereby tariffs are the most important thing which is kind of the impression you sometimes get from the UK government. Actually, there's a huge web of services. There are components uh, crisscrossing the continent. We're part of supply chains for, for cars. And you need a trade deal or you need trade deals that actually support all of that. That does mean no tariffs, but it also means you need elements of regulatory alignment. You need rules on people being able to travel between the UK and the EU to offer their services. You need rules on qualifications. You need rules on regulations. You need to, in some way, align your regulations so that you don't get stuck with your your, your goods being delayed, um, awaiting inspection, or companies don't have to produce the same goods twice for different firms. And if you do get stuck with all of those things, people in Europe are just going, in the EU, sorry, are just going to say, we can't be bothered dealing with the UK anymore. You're just trying to be different. It's just not worth it. And UK companies will find themselves uncompetitive. So it's really, it's all of those things that make up a a modern trade relationship. And obviously, the deal we have does nothing like that. It um, means that there are no tariffs. But frankly, there's not a huge amount more to it than that. Um, David, your your report highlights 10 areas that the government should be prioritising um, in terms of beefing up this deal to become more like a 21st century, you know, fit for modern trading agreement. Out of those 10, do you think some of them are more low hanging fruit than others? And, and if so, you know, which are the ones that you think the government really ought to just prioritise because they can adopt them relatively easily or, you know, without any sort of real political pain to themselves? 
There's been a lot of talk about services in the last few days that this deal does virtually nothing for services. And there are a couple of areas where the UK government should really be going for, which is a little bit of a mix of the low-hanging fruit and some that is more difficult but worth doing. And that is the data adequacy, where there is a kind of temporary arrangement for a few months pending the EU deciding whether they are going to grant us that. And regulatory dialogues, regulatory equivalents, and um, in, in some way, uh, equivalence arrangements for financial services. Those two should be really high priorities. If it was down to me, I would also be prioritizing membership of European regulatory bodies. These are things like the European Aviation Safety Agency. We don't want to have our own rules on aircraft safety, or at least I hope we don't. Um, Though it's it's just a it's a it's a no lose. I have no idea why we decided not to to go for that mm. uh, to start with. That seems obvious, and like many people, I have no idea why. Uh, other than spite, we decided not to participate in Erasmus because again, there's a there's a scheme there. It works. It's well used. Why wouldn't you go for it? Now, if you did though, if you did those things, none of which are terribly difficult, perhaps apart from the financial services, you go some way towards starting to put in place a realistic modern trading relationship. Um, David, the, the report mentions developing new trade rules for modern challenges. What, what areas do you think are poorly covered by boilerplate terms rooted in the last century? And what should rules governing them look like? I think there's a number of areas. I mean, services, there are not very good uh, trade rules for in free trade agreements generally. And so so you get this text saying we can have full access to services and then you get uh, pages and pages of reasons why we can't called reservations. But I was also thinking of climate change and animal welfare, antimicrobial resistance. These are issues that a lot of people are really quite concerned about and wonder whether trade is actually consistent with them. The EU will be looking to introduce uh, what is called carbon border adjustment measures, which are basically taxes on uh, imports that haven't um, been subject to any form of carbon pricing. I think that that is something that is overdue and really really needs to happen. There's been a discussion going on in the UK as to whether we can restrict imports of animal products that were produced to poor animal welfare standards. I think that's a discussion that needs to happen and rules need to be in place. We don't actually know whether that would be legal under World Trade Organization rules, and we really should know about that. Antimicrobial resistance is a really big issue. And again, Mm. there's no obvious trade rules on this. There's rampant overuse of antibiotics on all manner of uh, animal uh, animals raised in, in, in farms, and we really need to do something about that. David, you mentioned uh, not being an Erasmus, which is a huge shame, is the minimal way of putting it. Uh, what is the cost to universities? Because one of the things the government was trying to suggest, in particular Michael Gove in recent weeks, was that Erasmus wasn't that important because it mostly benefited the middle classes who were taking advantage of it, and it wasn't therefore a programme that was really so uh, really benefiting freedom of movement for the less well off it, do you, do you think that's the case or was erasmus still really valuable to the uk despite that 
Well, I, I haven't I haven't studied in detail the uh, you know the exact breakdown of, of cases, but when you go through the the anecdotes of people who we people have known, people who have said I went on Erasmus, it's not obvious that they're any different from the cross section of the uh, the public of, of students who who go to university at all. So it doesn't seem like there's any basis for this. But actually, I think it gets worse than that because. If you're going to try to set up some new scheme, which presumably is not going to focus much on Europe, but on the rest of the world, it's actually going to be more costly. It's going to be more costly potentially for students. It's going to be more costly for their families, because in, in many cases we hear about, you actually have not just the, uh, the student spending time uh, in Europe, or indeed European students spending time here, but then their families coming to, uh, coming to visit them as well. And that's going to be a lot harder if you're trying to do this with the US or Australia. It, it, it just seems geographically all wrong. Now, we're pretty sure that there were plenty of working class students who were taking part in Erasmus, but clearly there is a, a something of a uh, class issue in university attendance, so it's going to reflect that. Yeah, I did hear that uh, working class students were actually using the Erasmus grant as an additional boost to their income, um, which which was badly needed. But what about the alternative cheering system, which the government wants to bring in? Do you think that will be in any way an adequate replacement? Well, it doesn't seem to be an adequate replacement. I wanted to actually mention inward students coming to the UK, because this is a, not not just a point about, I don't know, European cohesion. It is a point about trade. People visiting the UK, students coming here, whether for a, a semester or to, to study here, bring in income for the, for the country. They're regarded as a, uh, as a UK export. So by stopping this, you're actually directly uh, affecting UK trade figures. You're directly reducing UK trade. The touring scheme only talks about UK students spending time in other countries. It doesn't say much about what that time will be and how that will work. I don't think it's even been specified. So it seems to be replacing a well-structured scheme which benefits the UK in a number of different ways with something which we don't know how it's going to work, how it's going to be structured, how many people will benefit, or indeed, for any long-term period, how much money will be uh, will be spent on it. So that doesn't sound like a very good replacement. Johnson talks about diverging from EU rules to prove our sovereignty at various points. Where do you think he's going to want to, to sort of pick fights on that issue because of course there is the uh, there is the kind of optics you know to appease the to appease the brexiters and show that we're not being pushed around where do you think those kind of flashpoints could come from well absolutely so there there are some flashpoints which are going to cause issues with the uh, treaty we've just signed so uh, one issue being discussed the working time directive uh, let's get rid of the working time directive as supplies in the in the UK except that we have committed to maintaining our labour standards in the in this uh, trade deal, so that could be uh, an, an issue. The EU could take sanctions against us if we if we do that. In terms of products and services regulation, there's been a lot of talk of diversifying in regulations on on coming issues such as driverless vehicles, autonomous vehicles, or uh, artificial intelligence. But nobody quite knows what the regulatory framework will be for that anyway. And I think there's a broader question here, a broader issue, which is that 
in the minds of Johnson and many of his supporters, regulations are a bad thing. They impose costs and they affect uh, trade. But the evidence for that doesn't actually stack up at all. Regulations actually are, are global and, and in many cases they're required for trade to actually happen. It is the regulations that create the basis on which trade can happen between countries um, and within the EU has actually made the uh, the market, particularly in areas of services. So on the one hand, we're going to talk a lot about divergence. It's not yet clear whether we're going to actually do very much of it or whether it's just going to be another issue where we talk a good game but don't actually do anything because as soon as we do, it would affect our trade. Well, as we know, that Johnson is so ideologically opposed to regulation and red tape uh, that he's cleared it all away and there's absolutely no chance of being fined, for example, for entering Kent without a licence. <laughs> Naomi, I want to talk about the politics of this briefly. Um, we talked a lot in advance about what Labour should do, what we would like Labour to do, what was perhaps politically wise for them to do. Uh, in the end, uh, quite a diverse range of Labour MPs abstained from Richard Bergen to Neil Coyle and Diane Abbott to Stella Creasy. Um, even as some staunch Remainers uh, on the front bench voted for it. Um, why do you think the vote broke the way it did? Are, are there clear patterns uh you know different sort of different groups of people i mean yeah to some extent it, there was a sort of an unholy alliance uh of of plp members on that um rebel group and if we think back to labor's referendum policy you know it was it was supported by members overwhelmingly but also the front bench including people like mcdonnell and abbott's um, and, you know, it was adopted at party conference, but it, it was insufficiently late. And Labour did lose more Remainers than Leavers at the last election. And I think that most of the PLP know that the idea that Labour can just move on from Brexit, as, as Starmer has said he wants to do, is pretty naive, because like it or not, the negative effects of Brexit are going to dominate our, our politics for years. So while there are undoubtedly some amongst the rebels who are just maybe a bit anti-Starmer, because they're sort of true Corbynites, um, others who are just very anti-Tory uh, and don't want to give them an inch. But I, I think the majority of them were probably uh, those that just saw that backing the deal was going to be bad politics for the party and, and potentially for them in their seats because they're campaigners. But even previous Red Wall MPs who'd lost their seats to the Conservatives were urging Lotto to abstain. And I, I think that did cut through to quite a lot of the PLP. And Starmer, you know, I think he's trying to stay one step ahead and, you know, maybe only one step ahead of Johnson on issues like COVID. But on Brexit, since becoming leader, he is becoming less distinguishable. And the vast majority of voters think that the Brexit vote was a mistake. Um, and at the moment, they don't have a political leader to get behind beyond maybe Caroline Lucas. And in, in, in most constituencies, you know, the, the Greens aren't aren't going to be in, in second place to the Tories. So I just really hope that these rebellions will help focus thinking within Labour about how to begin setting out their internationalist stall once more. And Roz, finally... Uh, Naomi suggested there that this is not, as Starmer would hope, the end of the Brexit issue as a problem for Labour. Do you think that the SNP and Lib Dems will want to exploit the fact that Labour voted for the deal? Um, undoubtedly, they may they may want to do that. I'm not sure it will get much traction. Uh, it, well, I mean, it, with, the, with the SNP, there may be a, a degree of that, particularly if Nicola Sturgeon decides does does fairly well in the may elections assuming those are still going to happen um does fairly well in the may elections in scotland and then 
campaigns very heavily for another Scottish uh, referendum on Scottish independence, then that may become a live issue. And of course, that Scotland is a particular problem for Labour because they really need Scottish seats in order to win a general election in the UK, but they're not getting them. So that that is a bigger issue. But apart from in Scotland, I don't think it's very much of an issue because the factions trying to undermine Starmer in his party are not are not particularly powerful at the moment and are not pro-EU factions. And wider society, while they there while there has been a turn against Brexit as an idea, that does not mean it is not the same thing as people saying, well, I think we should reverse it and go and rejoin. It's people saying well, it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. But for most people, it is now not thinkable for us to be a member of the EU. For most people, the decision has been made for better or for worse. And obviously, we all think for worse. But there isn't that impetus. There's a feeling of resignation. And I I think the best we can do now, of course, is to try to gradually align ourselves as much as possible with the EU rejoin programs where we can which we can rejoin like Erasmus like uh, and cooperate in every way possible we can't really start doing that until labor is in power so i think at the moment it's not such a risk to him as it might seem except potentially in scotland well that's all the brexit uh for now david hennig thanks for joining us and talking us through the future of trade pleasure we've reached the end of the show which means it's time for the exciting world of but your emails uh here's one from laura marcus happy new year guys thanks for everything i found it much more painful than i thought i would when we finally left first christmas eve was really horrible when they announced the deal then on the 30th when it passed then again on the 31st and again on the first I've been through close bereavement, so I know pain, and this is like a bereavement. I can't move on. I feel a real sense of loss and also anger. The bullies beat us, and now they're gloating. I sometimes think beating us was what it was all about for some of them. So tips on coping, please. I'm a trained counsellor. I know about the five stages of grief, but I'm stuck. I don't think I'll ever get to acceptance. Being beaten by bullies is very hard to bear. So give us your coping tips. I, I think you have to think of it as a long game. Um, keep a cool head. Don't go in too soon. Just work democratically towards getting rid of every single one of the fuckers who visited this catastrophe. And as it's like a revenge movie, pick your target, plan, nurse your grudge, watch it grow and 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 bloom its delicious night black blossom until one dark night. Is it like is it like Liam Neeson going? I will find you. Yes. I will kill you, and I will rejoin the European yes. Union yes. and join Schengen and adopt the euro. I, I know this will go against every councillor instinct that <laughs> that Laura has, but uh, but I think it's a really sort of Western European American thing. This idea that oh, it's been four days now. I need to get over it. Uh, you know, I think there is beauty to negative emotion. Uh, you need to really wallow in it and feel it like it's a Chekhovian act. Oh. 
She is though, Alex. She is. I mean, Laura, I'm so sorry to read this because you're so lovely um, and and so lovely and supportive on Twitter and things. And so I, I got really upset when I read this and I hate the thought of you feeling like that. Um, and I suppose, you know, look, we've had some good news. We've got Biden coming in. We've just had the, you know, Dems win those Georgia Senate races. We're going to control the Senate now. So there are green shoots of, of you know, recovery happening, albeit not on our shores yet. But we did have a big MRP poll in the Sunday Times last weekend showing that the Conservatives could easily lose some of their red wall gains, not be able to form uh, a, a government necessarily unless they're in some you know, kind of coalition. And we've got another three years to chip away at them on that. And and we will, and we are. And in terms of where to channel some of that frustration and sadness and all the rest of it, you know, it's everything that we've talked about before. Don't wait for democracy to happen to you. Go out and, and, and do democracy yourself. And whether that's, you know, small ways of making sure that internationalists and people that share our values are joining things as, you know, seemingly mundane as like the local allotment association or running for school governor or all those sorts of things, you know, just trying to make sure that our voices get heard in whatever democratic structures we have at our fingertips to, to be involved with. Um, and don't despair and, and know that you're not alone. There are millions and millions and millions of us in that shared collective grief with you. Yeah, well, 100% agree with Naomi there. But also remember that the EU is not a perfect institution. I think a lot of us, during the when the Remain movement took off, if you like, we wouldn't ever have thought about walking down a street with thousands of other people waving an EU flag. I mean, I can't imagine myself having done that a decade ago. And yet that's what a lot of us were doing. Basically, the EU became a symbol for us of all that the U- the appalling UK government was not. And we put our hopes and trust in, in staying in it. And we know what happened. But remember that it is only an institution. It is only a group of nations. It's not a perfect institution. Hungary is a member of the EU, and we know what state Hungary is in. You can be a fantastic country that's not in the EU, and you can be a really fucked up country that is in the EU. If I were to give you one piece of advice about how to try to engage and move uh, and, and ensure that we can move on, it is right now to make as much noise and fuss about the prospect of elections being postponed as possible. Because what we're seeing at the moment, we've seen in the last few days, is various local authorities in the UK saying, oh, I don't think we can hold our elections in May. It's all going to be too difficult with COVID. We want to postpone them. Now, the mayoral elections in London were already postponed from last May. If those get postponed again for another full year, no matter who you want to, you want to win, and I think we can all agree we don't want Sean Bailey to win, but that is not the point. The point is that in a democracy, you have elections. You need to have elections, and you can't just keep putting them off because of COVID. Other countries aren't doing it. Mm. We have postal votes. You can campaign in different ways. You don't have to have a street stall every week, every weekend in order to make your point politically. And we really do need to make a big fuss about this because there is a risk that there will have been no democratic input, no no verdict, if you like, on Johnson's leadership since the last general election in December 2019. And that, to me, is really shocking and appalling. Nobody going from a Kill Bill 2 option, then. (laughs) Fair enough. 
they're all good. Uh, mine is, is really quite simple, and I suppose it is just it is just about psychology. It's uh, and uh, Twitter, which was seeing uh, the reaction over the past year of many uh, Corbynites to uh, the failure of that uh, project, and the and they're objectless in what it looks like when you refuse to move on is so depressing to me um, that I just can't be like that. I just can't live in a state of just constant bitterness and dejection. Um, and you just you just have to keep moving on because that's what that's what politics is. It's just like, yeah, sometimes you get beaten by liars and bullies and anyone that kind of, you know, sort of grew up during, uh, during, during the, you know, the 80s. It's like, it wasn't great. It wasn't great, Margaret Thatcher. And so maybe I just don't expect... I, maybe I just expect that you're going to lose sometimes and that you're just going to be beaten. And I feel like at least at this point, and perhaps a lot of the energy that's coming from America is the sense that, well, you know what? Sometimes appalling people, they also lose. And that it's not that everything yeah. is shit and nothing matters. Uh, it's like, no, you know, sometimes there can be victories. And then again, I see, I suppose, some people on the left that can't even enjoy the Democrats' victory because they're another, they're just the corporate status quo. And it's like, my God, you're committed to never, ever being happy. <laughs> Take a day and off. I, and I just don't, I don't want to be one of those people. And I'm just going to keep kind of, you know, sort of moving on and looking for the, you know, the kind of the good news where I can find it because, um, because I think the alternative is just psychologically ruinous. Well, virtual hugs to you, Laura, from all of us. And that's the show. So thank you to Naomi. Thanks very much. Roz. Thank you. And Alex. No, thank you. And thanks to David Hennig for joining us earlier. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, remixed by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. <laughs> Hello and thank you for your support to Gabriella Slino, Mandy Taylor, Mark Watson and David Ralston. And a big thanks from me to John Shelton, Andy Blackaby-Isles, Andrew Prophet and Simeon Williamson. Hello and thank you from me to Mark Bateman, Alistair Richards, Chris Whiffin and Pierre Thibault. Finally, thanks from me to Matthew Stevens, Keith Barrow, Rich H and Ben Ashton. Take care and see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Doreen Linsky with Naomi Smith, Ross Taylor and Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yanina Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extended extra bit of Oh God, What Now? exclusive to Matrian Backers. This week, following How to Cope with Brexit, how are we all coping with lockdown again? Uh, I tweeted something the other day about whether dry January made any sense when it doesn't follow a December of parties and excess and life is hard enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God, I would say a range of views. Um, are any of you in an absolute no. mood this January? <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> I, never, I never drink too much anyway. Well, I mean, not ever. Like, you definitely have done on at least one occasion with me, Alex. Oh, yeah, but... <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the sort of person who gets drunk nightly. No. no. Um, so I no, don't feel no. that I need to dry out. I'm basically 
just nicely moist. I mean, I just think, you know, we, we've lost all of our usual coping mechanisms of, you know, going out and seeing your friends to cheer you up or booking a lovely holiday or, you know, whatever your usual escapism is. And so to take away the last one vestige of, you know, escapism we've got, which is, you know, having a couple of glasses of wine, it just would be too much well, careful because because when I when I when I implied that, that alcohol might perhaps sometimes be a comfort, I got sent uh, links to uh, alcohol counselling services, and that was a taste of the extended twelve-inch disco mega mix of this week's Oh God, What Now? You can get a longer edition of the podcast every week when you back us on Patreon, and it's ad-free too. Search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and find out more.